Section 6 of The Golden Bough, Part 1, The Magic Art of the Evolution of Kings, Volume 2, by James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 12, The Sacred Marriage, Part 1, Diana as a Goddess of Fertility. Dramatic Marriages of Gods and Goddesses as a Charm to Promote Vegetation In the last chapter we saw that according to a widespread belief, which is not without a foundation in fact, plants reproduce their kinds through the sexual union of male and female elements, and that on the principle of homeopathic or imitative magic, this reproduction can be stimulated by the real or mock marriage of men and women, who masquerade for the time being as spirits of vegetation. Such magical dramas have played a great part in the popular festivals of Europe, and based as they are on a very crude conception of natural law, it is clear that they must have been handed down from our remote antiquity. We shall hardly, therefore, err in assuming that they date from a time when the forefathers of the civilized nations of Europe were still barbarians, herding their cattle and cultivating patches of corn in the clearings of the vast forests, which then covered the greater part of the continent from the Mediterranean to the Arctic Ocean. But of these old spells and enchantments for the growth of leaves and blossoms, of grass and flowers and fruit, have lingered down to our own time in the shape of pastoral plays and popular merry-makings, is it not reasonable to suppose that they survived in less attenuated form some two thousand years ago among the civilized peoples of antiquity? Or, to put it otherwise, is it not likely that in certain festivals of the ancients we may be able to detect the equivalents of a May Day with suntide and midsummer celebrations. With this difference, that in those days the ceremonies had not yet dwindled into mere shows and pageants, but were still religious or magical rites, in which the actors consciously supported the high parts of gods and goddesses. Now in the first chapter of this book, we found reason to believe that the priest who bore the title of King of the Wood at Nimai had for his mate the goddess of the grove Diana herself. May not he and she, as king and queen of the wood, have been serious counterparts of the merry mummers who play the king and queen of May, the Whitsuntide bridegroom and bride in modern Europe? And may not their union have been clearly celebrated in the theogamy, or divine marriage? Such dramatic winnings of gods and goddesses as we shall see presently were carried out as solemn religious rites in many parts of the ancient world. Hence there is no intrinsic improbability in the supposition that the sacred grove in Nemai may have been the scene of an annual ceremony of this sort. Direct evidence that it was so there is none, but analogy pleads in favour of the view, as I shall now endeavour to show. Diana, a goddess of the woodlands. Diana was essentially a goddess of the woodlands, and Ceres was the goddess of the corn, and Bacchus a god of the vine. Sanctity of Holy Groves in Antiquity Her sanctuaries were commonly in groves, indeed every grove was sacred to her, and she is often associated with the forest god Sylvanus in dedications. We must not forget that to the ancients the sanctity of a holy grove was very real and might not be violated with impunity. For example, in Attica there was a sanctuary of Erythasian Apollo and it was enacted by law that any person caught in the act of cutting trees in it or carrying away timber, firewood or fallen leaves, should be punished with fifty stripes. If he was a slave, or with a fine of fifty drachmas if he was a freeman. 
the culprit was denounced by the priest to the king that is to the sacred official or minister of state who bore the royal title similarly it was the duty of the sacred merit andania in messenia to scourge slaves and find free men who cut wood in the grove of the great goddesses in Crete, it was forbidden under pain of curses and fines to fell timber sow corn and herd or fold flocks within the precinct of dictate and Zeus. in italy like customs prevailed near spolitium there was a sacred grove from which nothing might be taken and in which no wood might be cut except just so much as was needed for the annual sacrifice any person who knowingly violated the sanctity of the grove had to expiate his offence by sacrificing ox to jupiter and to pay besides a fine of three hundred pence in his treatise on farming cato directs that before thinning a grove the roman husbandman should offer a pig as an expiatory sacrifice to the god or goddess of the place and should entreat his or her favour for himself his children and his household the fratres unveils or brethren of the tilled fields were a roman college of twelve priests who performed public religious rites for the purpose of making the crops to grow and they wore wreaths of ears of corn as a badge of their office their sacrifices were offered in their grove of the goddess dea situated five miles down the tiber from rome so hallowed was this grove which is known to have included laurels and holy oaks that expiatory sacrifices of sows and lambs had to be offered when a rotten bough fell to the ground or an old tree was laid low by a storm or dragged down by a load of snow on its branches and still more elaborate expiation had to be made with the slaughter of cells sheep and bulls when any of the sacred trees were struck by lightning and it was necessary to dig them up by the roots split them burn them and plant others in their room at the annual festival of the parilia which was intended to ensure the welfare of the flocks and herds roman shepherds prayed to be forgiven if they had entered a hollow grove or sat down under a sacred tree or lopped a holy bough in order to feed a sick sheep on the leaves sense of the divinity of woods shared by polite roman writers nor was this sense of the indwelling divinity of the woods confined to the simple rustics who tending their flocks in their checkered shade felt the presence of spirits in the solemn stillness of the forest heard their voices in the sough of the wind among the branches and saw their handiwork in the fresh green of spring and the fading gold of autumn the feeling was shared by the most cultivated minds in the greatest age of roman civilization pliny says that the woods were formerly temples of the deities even now simple country folk dedicate a tall tree to a god with the ritual of the olden time and we adore sacred groves and the various signs that reigns in them not less devoutly than images that gleam with gold and ivory similarly seneca writes if you come upon a grove of old trees that have shot up above the common light and shut out the sight of the sky by the gloom of their matted boughs you feel there is a spirit in the place so lofty is the wood so lone the spot so wondrous the thick unbroken shade the breaking of the golden bough a rite of solemn significance not a mere peasant's bravado thus the ancients like many other people in various parts of the world were deeply impressed with the sanctity of holy groves and regarded even the cutting of a bough in them as a sacrilege which called for expiation he therefore a candidate for the priesthood of diana Nimai, had to break a branch of a certain tree in the sacred grove before he could fight the king of the wood we may be sure that the act was a rite of solemn significance and that to treat it as a mere piece of bravado 
a challenge to the priest to come on and defend his domain would be to commit the commonest of all errors in dealing with the past that namely of interpreting the customs of other races and other generations by reference to modern european standards in order to understand an alien religion the first essential is to divest ourselves as well as we can of our own familiar prepossessions and to place ourselves at the point of view of those whose faith and practice we are studying to do this at all is difficult to do it completely is perhaps impossible yet the attempt must be made if the inquiry is to progress instead of returning on itself in a vicious circle diana not a mere goddess of trees but like artemis a personification of the teeming life of nature both animal and vegetable but whatever her origin may have been diana was not always a mere goddess of trees like her greek sister artemis she appears to have developed into a personification of the teeming life of nature both animal and vegetable as mistress of the green wood she would naturally be thought to own the beasts whether wild or tame that ranged through it looking for their prey in the gloomy depths munching the fresh leaves and shoots among the boughs or cropping the herbage in the open glades and dwells a deity of the woods is naturally the patron of the beasts in the woods both game and cattle thus she might come to be the patron goddess both of hunters and herdsmen just as sylvanus was the god not only of woods but of cattle similarly in finland the wild beasts of the forest were regarded as the herds of the woodland god tapio and of his stately and beautiful wife no man might slay one of these animals without the gracious permission of the divine owners hence the hunter prayed to the sylvan deities and vowed rich offerings to them that they would drive the game across his path the cattle also seem to have enjoyed the protection of the spirits of the woods both when they were in the stalls and while they stayed in the forest so in the belief of russian peasants the spirit lest she rules both the wood and all the creatures in it the bear is to him what the dog is to man and the migrations of the squirrels the field mice and other denizens of the woods are carried out in obedience to his behests success in the chase depends on his favour and to assure himself of the spirit's help the huntsman lays an offering generally of bread and salt on the trunk of a tree in the forest in white russia every herdsman must present a cow to leshi in summer and in the government of archangel some herdsmen have won his favour so far that he even feeds and tends the herds for them similarly the forest god of the laps ruled over all the beasts of the forest they were viewed as his herds and good or bad luck in hunting depended on his will so too the samagitians deemed the birds and beasts of the woods sacred doubtless because they were under the protection of the sylvan god before the gayos as a marcher hunt deer the wild goats or wild pigs with hounds in the woods they deem it necessary to obtain the leave of the unseen lord of the forest this is done according to a prescribed form by a man who has special skill in woodcraft he lays down a quid of betel before a stake which is cut in a particular way to represent the lord of the wood and having done so he prays to the spirit to signify his consent or refusal the crowning of hunting dogs on diana's day was probably a purificatory ceremony to cleanse them from the guilt of having killed game the creatures of the goddess we have seen that at Diana's festival it was customary to crown hunting dogs, to leave wild beasts in peace, and to perform a purificatory ceremony for the benefit of young people. Some light is thrown on the meaning of these customs by a passage in Arian's treatise on hunting. It tells us that a good hound is a boon conferred by one of the gods upon the huntsman, who ought to testify his gratitude by sacrificing to the huntress Artemis. 
Further, Arian goes on to say, It is right that after a successful chase a man should sacrifice and dedicate the first fruits of his bag to the goddess, in order to purify both the hounds and the hunters in accordance with old custom and usage. He tells us that the Celts were wont to form a treasury for the goddess Artemis, into which they paid a fine of two or bulls for every hare they killed, a drachm for every fox, and four drachms for every blow. The crowning of hunting dogs as a form of purification. Once a year, on the birthday of Artemis, they opened the treasury, and with the accumulated fines purchased a sacrificial victim, it might be a sheep, a goat, or a calf. Having slain the animal and offered her share to the hunters Artemis, they feasted both men and dogs, and they crowned the dogs on that day in order to signify, says Arian, that the festival was for their benefit. The Celts to whom Arian, a native of Bithynia, here refers were probably the Galetians of Asia Minor, but doubtless the custom he describes was imported by these barbarians, among with their native tongue and the worship of the oak, from their old home in central and northern Europe. The Celtic divinity whom Arian identifies with Artemis may well have been really akin both to her and to the Italian Diana. We know from other sources that the Celts revered a woodland goddess of this type, thus Arduina, the goddess of the forest of the Ardennes, was represented, like Artemis Diana, with a bow and quiver. In any case, the custom described by Arian is good evidence of a belief that the wild beasts belong to the goddess of the wilds, who must be compensated for their destruction and taken with what he says of the need of purifying the hounds after a successful chase. The Celtic practice of crowning them at the annual festival of Artemis may have been meant to purge them of the stain they had contracted by killing the creatures of the goddess. The same explanation would naturally apply to the same custom observed by the Italians at the festival of Diana. Cattle crown to protect them from witchcraft but why, it may be asked, should crowns of garlands cleanse dogs from the taint of bloodshed? The answer to this question is indicated by the reason which the South Slavonian peasant assigns for crowning the horns of his cows with wreaths of flowers on St. George's Day, the 23rd of April. He does it in order to guard the cattle against witchcraft. Cows that have no crowns are regarded as given over to the witches. In the evening, the chaplets are fastened to the door of the cattle stall and remain there throughout the year. A herdsman who fails to crown his beast is scolded and sometimes beaten by his master. The German and French custom of crowning cattle on Midsummer Day probably springs from the same motive. For the Midsummer Eve, just as on Walpurgis night, witches are very busy holding their nocturnal assemblies and trying to steal the milk and butter from the cows. To guard against them, some people at this season lay besoms crosswise before the doors of the stalls. Others make fast the doors and stop up the chinks lest the witches should creep through them on their return from the revels. In Swabia, all the church bells used to be kept ringing from nine at night till break of day, on midsummer morning, to drive away the infernal rout from honest folks' houses. South Slavonian peasants are up betimes that morning, gather the dew from the grass, and wash the cows with it. That saves their milk from the hellish charms of the witches. Similarly, the crowning of hunting dogs may have been meant to protect them against the angry spirits of the beasts they had killed. Now when we observe that garlands of flowers, like hawthorn and other green boughs, avail to ward off the unseen powers of mischief, we may conjecture that the practice of crowning dogs at the festival of the huntress goddess was intended to preserve the hounds from the angry and dangerous spirits of the wild beasts which they had killed in the course of the year. 
fantastical as this explanation may sound to us it is perfectly in accordance with the ideas of the savage who as we shall see later on resorts to a multitude of curious expedients for disarming the wrath of the animals whose life he has been obliged to take thus conceived the custom in question might still be termed a purification but its original purpose like that of many other purificatory rites would not be so much to cleanse moral guilt as to raise a physical barrier against the assaults of malignant and mischievous spirits conceived as the moon diana was also a goddess of crops and of childbirth but diana was not merely a patroness of wild beasts a mistress of woods and hills of lonely glades and sounding rivers conceived as the moon especially it would seem as a yellow harvest moon she filled the farmers grange with godly fruits and heard the prayers of women in travail in her sacred grove in Nemi, as we have seen she was especially worshipped as a goddess of childbirth who bestowed offspring on men and women thus diana like the greek artemis with whom she was constantly identified may be described as a goddess of nature in general and of fertility in particular we need not wonder therefore that in her sanctuary on the aventine she was represented by an image copied from the many-breasted idol of the ephesian artemis with all its crowded emblems of exuberant fecundity hence too we can understand why an ancient roman law attributed king tullius hostilius prescribed that when incest had been committed an expiatory sacrifice should be offered by the pontiffs in the grove of diana for we know that the crime of incest is commonly supposed to cause a dearth hence it would be meet that the atonement for the offence should be made to the goddess of fertility as a goddess of fertility diana had herself to be fertile and for that purpose needed a male partner now on the principle that the goddess of fertility must herself be fertile it behoved diana to have a male partner her mate if the testimony of service may be trusted was at verbius who had his representative or perhaps rather his embodiment in the king of the wood nimai the aim of their union would be to promote the fruitfulness of the earth of animals and of mankind and it might naturally be thought that this object would be more surely attained if the sacred nuptials were celebrated every year the parts of the divine bride and bridegroom being played either by their images or by living persons no ancient writer mentions that this was done in the grove at nimai but our knowledge of the Arisian ritual is so scanty that the want of information on this head can hardly count as a fatal objection to the theory that theory in the absence of direct evidence must necessarily be based on the analogy of similar customs practised elsewhere some modern examples of such customs more or less degenerate were described in the last chapter here we shall consider their ancient counterparts end of section six